Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Wednesday, and somebody was bugging me to do a talk on Rebuchan Wasman. I wasn't going to do it, but he bugged me successfully, uh, and so... For better or worse, I'm going to say a few words. I repeat a few words about this very complicated subject, Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman. Um, so today's podcast is being sponsored. Wasn't planning to do it, but he's a very uh, uh, hard hard uh, press salesman. Is that the term? And uh, uh, I will comply. This is being sponsored by uh, Harry Gendler and family. He's in Chicago. And uh, his father was a student of Rebuchan Wasserman and Baranovich in between the two wars. And his father actually could do a podcast about the way he described it. Ended up, after being in Baranovich, Rebuchan ended up serving in the in the Soviet army for four years. I don't know how I survived. Went to the Eastern Front against Hitler and then had other adventures. And made to the American zone. So, you know, one of those typical mid-20th century types of people. Either they got killed in the war or they didn't. And whoever didn't get killed had is a story. So... His father's yard site, Chaim Ben Asher, is this week in uh, two days. And I don't have time to do it later this week because I have a lot of stuff to do. So as I said, um, I'm reluctantly taking on this uh, assignment uh, to bring out not the full uh, talk on Rebbe Watson, which is a gigantic subject. A gigantic subject. I steer away from gigantic subjects because they don't lend themselves, in my opinion, to podcasts. Uh, sometimes I get carried away and get stupid and do it anyway, but when I when my mind doesn't control my emotions, I don't. And Rokhana, I consider to be a very controversial figure too. And again, it's not something I want to get into. But nevertheless, with that strange introduction, I will say a few words about the famous Rabbi Yochanan Wasserman. Um, a few words I repeat. And uh, I actually spoke about some part of this long ago. But uh, nobody knows about it, so I'll, br- I'll, I'll bring out the point I wanted to bring out. Uh, I think everybody... So again, this is being in tribute to Chaim Ben Usher, to uh, Harry Gendler's father, uh, and the family's still Jewish. I mean, you know, look, look at that. Now look here. Abachanan uh, was not an old man when he died. He's born in 1875, I think, and was killed by Hitler, or the Litvaks, to tell you the truth. The Lithuanian guy shot him. You know, that, that's what happened. Um, if you're interested in those kind of stories, you'll have to go to my uh, YouTube lecture a couple weeks uh, years ago. I had like five or six parts on the Lithuanian Jewry, the history of the whole Lithuanian Jewry. And when you get to the beginning of uh, nine, in, in, in the German invasion of 41, the Litvaks themselves uh, jumped out of the woodwork and, and polished off, killed, shot, and otherwise killed thousands of Jews. And Bukhana was one of them. Okay? So he wasn't killed by the Germans, he was killed by the Litvaks, uh, and very ha- they were very happy to do it. So, But he was only uh, in his 60s. Let me see now, he's born in 75? Uh, he was 65, 66 years old. Wasn't that old? I mean, 
had things been different, uh, if he would have escaped, Rebbe could have lived another 10, 15 years for sure. And so he would have seen Israel become a state. And in the 50s and all that, woo, that would have been something because he was the number one ideological anti-Zionist without question among the Litvaks, as far as I can tell. <laughs> okay? Now, Rebbe is from Latvia, which to that was sort of like being from Lithuania, except that in Latvia they were a little more, a little more open to Limudichol. Uh, came from very from family. At a young age, he went off to the yeshivas. Rebbechanim is, how do we define him? I think these are things that everybody knows. Um, I'm just lining it up to make a point. Uh, he was Rosh Hashiva. In other words, he's from that new identity that emerged in the late 1800s, early 1900s, what we call the Lithuanian yeshivas, in which it's not Rabbonim who are the authority figures, rabbis of cities, of communities, which used to be the situation in Kal Yisrael, but rather is divorced from the rabbinate and is Rosh Hashiva. That is his job description. Um, and and as a Rosh Hashiva, and a member of the Moises Gdolia Torah, in other words, the top, top group, so he's an authority figure in that new way that really never existed before, which was the Rosh Hashiva per se, as opposed to the rabbi being the dominant figure within the culture. This is what emerged in the, by the Litvaks. Uh, there were certainly Rabbonim that were very important, and you know, figures. But I think you know and I know, the name of the game was the Litvish Yeshiva. And whoever's the head of that is the one that really calls the shots in the formation of the culture, in the teeth of modernity, and in the counter-revolutionary atmosphere of, you know, the late 1800s or 1900s within the Russian Empire and the successor states afterwards, down to Hitler's time. So uh, he could have been a rabbi of a city or something like that, but that's not what he wished to do. He wouldn't be a full-time Rosh Hashiva. Now, mind you, some of these big Litvish types were both. The Ponebisharov was the rub of the city, and he started his own yeshiva. Then Etziv, back in the 1800s, who may be among the first of these types, was the rub of Volozhin, the town, as well as the head of the yeshiva, although the second role was much more important. Um, the Telzer Rav, Elvazer Gordon, where Rolchanan Wasserman learned when he was young, was again the Rav of a town, a city. At the same time, he started the Yeshiva, or he didn't start it, but he built it up. So, um, Rolchanan Wasserman would therefore be from that era. Uh, and I don't want to get into all the little details. You can look any of this up yourself on any kind of a book, or uh, the Art Scroll has a book, and the Wikipedia, I'm sure, has it. He started in this time, he was in Pirish, and then he ended up, you know, for a while he actually lived with Rav Cook, who was a young guy at that time, and the Rav of a town, uh, when Rav Cook was in his anti-Zionist phase. Uh, but he ended up, let's say, in, 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 in the yeshiva system, and he was in Telus for X number of years, and later he was by Rav Chaim Brisker, and later he became very close in Ron with the Chavetz Chaim, and after that, he went on his own, and, you know, without boring you with all the details, he became most famous for setting up the Yeshiva Baranovich. I think everybody knows. Well, 1920, the close of the uh, First World War. And he ran it, and this was his power base in the sense of being the Rosh Yeshiva in the 1920s and 30s. Baranovich being like a junior junior Yeshiva, you know, uh, Yeshiva Katana or something like that, as a prep for sending you to other places. So this calls for being, I guess what we would say today would be a master mechanic, you know, because you have those that age of kids. 
Um, that's where Bukhana was. May I say, Baranovich is very interesting. In order to understand this, you have to look at the um, map. <clears throat> you Google a map of Europe in the 1920s and 30s, and you'll see the Republic of Poland. And the Republic of Poland has like a big strip on its eastern side, on the right-hand side. And this means that when World War One was proceeding and ending, the Russian Empire disintegrated, and the communists took over. They killed the Tsar, uh, and they tried to conquer all of Eastern Europe, including Poland. And they had a big war with with the new Republic of Poland. And believe it or not, the Polish gave them a bloody nose. This is called the Battle of Warsaw. There are movies about this. Uh, Marshal Pilsudski. And the result is that the Poles actually defeated, to some extent, the Soviets and conquered a Stickel territory, which was part of Poland. And therefore, I'm talking about what we call today Belarus and Ukraine. Since this is in the news, you may possibly have an idea what I'm talking about. And what is called today Belarus and Ukraine, these two rather large countries. So in those days, 90% or more was in the Soviet Union. But a 10% or something like that, on the extreme left, on the extreme west, was under Poland. Now the difference is, and this is the generation of Bukhana Wasman, the Chavetz Chaim, and all these others after the First World War. See, I'm trying to skip through all the details. The difference is that in the area of the Soviet Union, you couldn't be a firm Jew, they would close it down and liquidate it. In Poland, you could be a firm Jew. So, Baranovich, I believe, was very close to the frontier with the Soviet Union, but it was part of Poland. And during the 1920s and 1930s, the Russians did not invade. And so, it's a little weird to me. You're all the way in the eastern side of Poland, in territory which is not Polish population, but as we would call today Belarusian, uh, which is not Polish. The Gaim didn't want to be under Poland. The Jews weren't so hotsy-totsy over it. <laughs> but from the Frumkai point of view, Poland, you can be a from With all the trouble you had in Poland, you're allowed to practice from Judaism. You can have yeshivas. You can have Beis Yaakovs and all the rest of it. And that's where Bokhanim was. So he built up this yeshiva roughly on the Polish-Soviet border, as I say before, close to it. And this became, I don't want to say power-based because that sounds cynical, and I don't mean it to be cynical at all, but this was his his institutional base. That's a better way of putting it. However, Bokhanim, and I would say, in addition, that he certainly was, uh, I think everybody knows, one of the Gedoli Rosh Hashivas. So in other words, the Lumdus, he's one of the big people of the Lumdus. Now the Kovach and all the rest of it. Uh, the culture we have today in the Lithuanian sheep world is based, I mean, heavily influenced by what I would call the Tekufa of Lumdus, which would be roughly, I don't know, 1890, uh, something like that, 1890 to the Hitler, and those are the names that we hear all about the whole time in Yeshiva. Rab Chaim, Rab Shemeshkop, you know, Rab Chanoaster learned in Tel Zandra, Rab Shemeshkop. Uh, I don't know, you know, all those things. Rab Bear, and Rab Chanoaster is one of them. Okay? So when it comes to Yeshivas, they're still uh, learning his stuff. You know, the, the alumnus. And as I said before, he himself learned under Rab Chaim Brisker, among others, and under Rab Shemeshkop, among others. And it's just interesting. In that particular regard, there's not much of a difference between Bilchan and the others. So the question is, what, what's special or unique about him? 
And this is the point I wanted to address in the remarks I'm saying today. As I said to uh, Harry Gandler, I said I would talk about an aspect of, uh, of Rebbe Hanan Wasserman. At, or try to, anyway. And that is that, um, let's see here. Um, ideology. Hashkafa. Das Torah, as we call it today. In my understanding, that's all I ever can share with you over here. This is my take on these things. And here I'm just skimming the surface. Vachon uh, Wasman is kind of unique or, or outstanding, shall we say, in his interest in ideas and ideologies, hashkafas, and all that goes along with that, um, more than anyone else that I can think of. And he wrote a ton of stuff, not Lomdis, commenting on the issues of the day and really applying what we would call today Das Torah. Now, his Das Torah. His Das Torah is not necessarily identical to anyone else. He never claimed it was. He has fights, if you know about this stuff, for example, on Hashkafic issues with Seder Chazanish, um, especially about the, the Sanhedrin and all that, what they were talking about in the 1930s. Uh, Professor Brown, most of you won't know what I'm talking about. There's been a lot of interesting um, scholarship by historians in the last 25, 30 years, not, uh, rather recently, uh, interest is now turning to the subject of the yeshivas, the Rosh yeshivas, in detail, their hashkafas, their this, their that. Um, you have, for example, this very fat biography by Professor Benny Brown. He's on the Chazanish, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. Take the trouble to go through it, and you'll see where he agrees and disagrees with Bukhana on specific issues. Um, so there's my Das Torah and your Das Torah and his Das Torah. By that I mean, there's a Bukhanan, there's a Chazanish, I don't know, could be the Chavetz Chaim. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry. We're talking about the big the big people, the big guns. Uh, nevertheless, there's certain common lines that they had, but as far as I know, Bukhanan was the one who's by far the most articulate, the most detailed on these. So in other words, a person, I'm giving you sort of like an introduction to the concept of Bukhanan Wasserman, I wouldn't say Wilhelm Wasserman as a philosopher, that might be a term I could use, but Wilhelm Wasserman as a political, a metaphysical a political commentator, which is, you know, really interesting about him. Now, it's clear that from a young age, Wilhelm, in addition to all the lumpness and things like that, which of course he mastered, in addition to the super frumkite, because um, he was maybe the Talmud Mubak of the Chavetzheim, uh, that's how many talk. Uh, and the Chavetz Mr. Amuna, that Rebbe will be an ideologist of fideism without question. If you read his writings, he is, is you know, it's lobbed like a Catholic thing. In other words, Amuna is the number one uh, thing that, that far transcends anything else. Uh, which is actually a very modern kind of concept from the Frumkai point of view, which leads me to what I wanted to say a few words about. And I say, I did this many years ago from my mother's yard site. Uh, if you get the art school biography of Rokhana Wasserman, which has been around for a long time, which is a translation or a knockoff of the Orochan, you'll find that Rokhana, who is very from, you don't need me to tell you that. It's very interesting that, um, what do you call it? Uh, you, you'll read his uh, young years. I'm opening up my rusty, trusty old art school. It must be 
I don't know, one year was it many, many years ago. It's one of the early art school books, right? Um, published in, I don't know, uh, you know, the 80s, I guess, right? So, uh, 1982, okay? So, think of, that's when art school was still in the Coney Island Avenue. Anyhow, um, listen to this. So, they're talking about Ochan and the Young Gears, and what it says is, that, um, oh, he studied up a storm at 12 hours a day, and so on and so forth. Now I'm reading on page 28. Abu never wasted a, day, a moment in the day. He was remarkably punctilious in observing the Shiva schedules. Adkadekach, that it was said and tells that you could set a watch by his motions when, when he entered and departed, so precise was he. At night, when he became began to feel tired, he was dipping his feet in the cold water not to fall asleep. Okay. His other qualities brought him fame and tells. His yeshiva acquaintances were convinced that he was capable of skimming through a whole book from beginning to end and repeat it word for word. So that would be, um, you know, uh, what, what should I tell you, uh, photographic memory. Now look at this. Then they have a, um, what do you call it? A uh, footnote. The testimony of Dr. Benjamin uh, Menashe Levin, who was also in Tells at that time and later became a big religious scientist and he wrote the Otsar Gaonim. Okay, a former student in Tells, known as Binyamin Yashlamin, who was from, he spoke from personal experience. Rebel Khan, so he's telling his memories. He remembers Rebel Khan when he was in Tells. Rebel Khan learned German by memorizing the dictionary <laughs> and mastering the language sufficiently to read the newspapers and various scientific works fluently, as was known to his students of later years. So he. Learned German, because that's the language of European culture. It's from a dictionary. And then he read German newspapers. Whoa! What German newspapers is he reading? Right? And why? He wants to know what's going on in the world. Now, wait a minute. I'm not finished. Very scientific books. In Baranovich, for example, it says, he kept a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason under his bookshelves and would read it in places where tourist studies forbidden. Those in the bathroom. So, wait a minute. He, um, under his bookshelves, here's the base madrish in Baranovich, and, or his office, whatever, and here's all these for him, and underneath, you have Kant. Immanuel Kant was the famous and controversial uh, German philosopher of the late 1700s, 1700s, let's say, who uh, sort of revolutionized uh, philosophy and very, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit in a second, and uh, created, a, uh, he brought the old system of philosophy into disrepute, so he put it that way. It's related in a certain safer that Bukhanan joined some fellow students who were studying German in some house. Whoa, so here I am in Tells, <laughs> in the 1890s, Tells, and he's supposed to be learning based Spanish all day, and he, and he is, but he's also a member of some Chabur where they're studying German. Such study was forbidden or frowned upon by the Shiva, the administrators, because it d- distracted the students from immersion Torah studies. Really? Rebbe Wasserman? Consequently, his companions studied German secretly. And secretly studying Limitichol was very common in literature Shivas. Um, as you see, not even with bad intentions, but a person said, listen, I have to know more when I get out of the Yeshiva one day. I have to go into business, do this, that, and the other. I better know more than just the Gemara. Uh, but the Yeshiva doesn't like it. 
Consequently, Rabbi Hanan's companion studied German secretly, it says, but he read the German grammar book aloud like he would learn Gemara. So it just blows the mind. Instead of reading uh, Arbavas and Zikin, he's reading uh, Kant's introduction to a critique of pure reason, seemingly oblivious to the need of hiding what he was doing. His behavior led the yeshiva administration to become aware of these activities and put a stop to them. His friends got angry at them. Notice, why do you blab your mouth and say it out loud and get us in trouble? He, however, claimed he failed to understand why they're resentful. If it's wrong, then why did you do it? And if it's not wrong, why do I have to hide? Well, come on. <laughs> come on. Yerucham Varhaftig, who was a famous Talmud Chacham, wrote a lot of memoirs, recounted the following incident from personal experience. Notice, you've heard of that. So, uh, now, Yerucham Varhaftig was writing this that he was Rebbe Hanan tells. He's telling the story. A member of the Yeshiva staff noticed the Raskaya Slova, which let's call it the Russian New York Times, a liberal paper, by the way, even though it's not an anti Semitic paper, a Russian newspaper protruding from Mulchanan's pocket. So, he's not only learning German, he's learning Russian. He's not only reading German newspapers, he's reading Russian newspapers. And he's reading one of the grounds of the Yeshiva, not in, a, not in some library, you know, a public library a couple blocks away or anything like this, in a, in a climate where you don't do this any more than a guy right now in near or punish, he's not going to walk in the base medrash with Ma'ariv or Ha'aretz or something like that, you know? Anyway, without hesitating for a minute, the yeshiva administrator, let's say, the Mash- let's call him the Mashkiach, snatched the paper and ran to the Rosh Yeshiva and said, you have to punish Rebbe Chana. Rebbe Chana demanded that the paper returned with him because you took it. He was asked, why we are considering giving you a kanas? Why are you worried about Heshev Zegzela? You know, as you say, I want my paper back, it cost me a nickel. We're about to hit you with a kanas for 50 bucks. Rebbe Chana insisted that the fine and the taking of the newspaper without permission were two separate matters. Tzvei <laughs> Dinim. First, the paper had to be restored to its owner. So give me my newspaper back, which he took from me, my Russian newspaper, Gaisha newspaper, may I say. And finally, tell students to recount that the Rashiva consented to Rabbi Khan to read the paper. From then on, he would enter the yeshiva in a few minutes before the beginning of the um, Seder, would utilize the time to spread the newspaper was lectern, rapidly read whatever interests him, and, and then take it away. Just that scene has to go into some movie. <laughs> Some uh, somebody has to have a scene like that. You walk into base matters on your stender, you pull out the New York Times. Now it's ten minutes of nine. Let's say the Seder starts at nine. Ten minutes. Of nine. You read the newspaper for ten minutes or whatever, fifteen minutes, and then you close the paper and put it away, and then you throw yourself totally in learning. It's too much. Okay, at least I consider this to be quite remarkable. Now, what's happens with Kant? Why would he have in Baranovich? 20 years when he was there, molding young minds, because again, Baranovich was like a, a preparatory yeshiva, right, which requires a special type of education, and they were learning in great poverty, I think Mr. Gandler told me his father was hungry or something like that, you know, these things are, are new, um, are, are well known, so what's up is, uh, why would he have, of all the newspapers, Kant, which is very hard to read, now I am a historian and not a philosopher, I know about Kant, but he's too dense for me to read. I tried once or twice. It's so boring. Right? Now, I have friends who are into philosophy, and for them it's fascinating. Kant is one of the great philosophers 
And I'll tell you what I think. Uh, and I think it's 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 cute and interesting. And that's the following. There was a famous safer that came out around the year of the death of the Vilna Gun in Vilna uh, called Safer Abris. Maybe you've seen it around. They publish it every once in a while in farm stores. It's a weirdo safer. And you go online, you look it up. Safer Abris. Pinchas Elio of Vilna. And a from guy had a big huskumus and things like that. It's one of these books which um, tries, among other things, it's a mishmash. Part of it is Musser, Ashkafa, and part of it is science. He wants to teach the readers epics about science, bringing them up to modern science near 1700s, right, 1797, uh, the new discoveries of the 18th century, which were quite different. The modern world you and I live in kind of starts in the 18th century and uh, turn towards scientific empiricism and all that, which is the beginning of genuine science and real discoveries and that sort of thing. Taka starts in the 1700s. So here's a guy who was real from. He wandered all over Europe, pick, trying to pick up Chachma. Uh, he's born in Lemberg, actually, he's a, but his parents were Litvish, and he ended up in Vilna for a while. I think he knew the Vilna gone. And... Uh, in the old-fashioned Maimonidean sense, he wanted to spread among Jews knowledge of basic Chachmas. I myself, it's a fat safer. I myself, this would all be boring, only for a historian of science. Why is somebody interested in what, you know, the discoveries in astronomy and meteorology and Edward Jenner, you know, from the 18th century, we're, we're way past that. But at that time, it was something, and he even says, I don't want the guy to say that Jews are Am Chacham they the opposite of Am Chacham They don't know nothing. You know, if you're Jewish, you know, you know Gomorrah, and beyond that, you know, Jack, and therefore you're a member of an inferior religion, race, and all. No, I'm going to bring you up to up to speed. So it's unusual, and I'll say it again. In its day, now times are different today. In its day, in late 1700s or late 1800s, this is a very popular book, which was sold out one, two, three, um, in the Frum community. Okay, especially in Lithuania, there was a great openness to science and modernity if it wasn't done in an unfrom way. The Maskilan came and screwed everything up by turning into anti from. Even the early Maskilan had askamas from famous literature rabbis because they, the Grohl was like that also, by the way. He gave askama or whatever to that you know, Euclid book, you know, and the geometry stuff and the other things. Again, provided that it was um, not anti-from. If I could, you know, put this in modern terminology, I don't know if this is an exact thing, but, you know, suppose somebody wrote a Gavaldica math book. There's nothing religiously controversial about a math book. So suppose the guy could write in a very, uh, give the most advanced mathematical ideas in a very clear and popular form that would be easy for a lot of people to understand. Nothing wrong with that, Okay. You know, you could see that somebody would give him a scum or something like that. Maybe not in our days. We're very closed-minded. But, you know, long ago. And that's what happened. So, why am I going through all this? Now, I'm talking about a safer has hundreds of pages. I mean, it's about 500 pages. However, one of the things he does over there is as follows. Um, Kant lived in the 1700s. He's a contemporary of Moses Mendelssohn, may I say. His famous critique of pure reason 
Ryan Vernunft, uh, had the effect of uh, blowing apart, of destroying all the philosophers before him, especially in the Middle Ages and things like that. Aristotle, Plato, all these other guys, blown out of the water by Kant. He's beginning, because he's the one who said, you know, what's the basis of knowledge? It's a critique of pure reason. And, you know, your your assumptions about everything, which the Rambam was believing was into, because that was considered scientific once upon a time. Kant is the guy who destroyed all that. Now, is that good or bad? Well, from a from perspective, you can say like this. Kant is actually performing a good deed because he's showing that all these Jews who wasted their time arguing in the Middle Ages about philosophical stuff and who went off the derrick as a result of their engagement with philosophy were, were, were chasing a, a dead horse. Because we know now in perspective that all that science and all their philosophy was wrong. So you gave up something that was Nitzchias, namely the Torah, for something that was a hot item in the 15th century, but afterwards looks laughable that somebody would do it. This is a theme I mentioned before. You know, imagine a Hellenist on Hanukkah who gave up his Judaism for Zeus. Today, in retrospect, it looks like a dumbbell. Not wicked, just a dumbbell. You gave up something impermanent for something, you know, transient. This was the point of the Sefer Bris. And he has over here a famous passage. I had to look at where I have it uh, highlighted from years ago, where he says, and here he's attacking um, Solomon Maimon, who was a, uh, a literature guy who became not religious because of my Monadian philosophy. And I mean, he was a brilliant uh, philosopher. My friend, Professor Malam, is like the world's expert on, on this guy. And he wrote a very famous autobiography in the 1790s. And, and, and his, his a commentary on the hard parts of the Mornavukim called Give it Hamora. And I'll just read you a short paragraph from our frummy author, Pinchas Oyov Vilna. Roisi Aniki is part of a philosoph, but give us Amora. I see he's boasting. Bakdamas Pirushla Sefer Mernevuchim. Biamar Shegia, a philosophia, how Yunus Latakash Lemusum, this man is there. Right? And he says, writing in the 1700s, that uh, pure speculative philosophy, Yunus, pure speculative philosophy has reached its, its fullness, its full maturity now in the 18th century. So basically, that is the truth, whereas the Jewish stuff is not true. So our author is attacking him. The ain't var minatema, Notice, and and I understand where he's coming from. Kibachol dar vador, midoras hakadmonim. In all previous centuries, chashu hafilosofim kacha. Right, the philosophers always thought that they've reached the peak of human knowledge. Notice, as we would call today, the truth. Befrat bedor shal risto especially in Aristotle's time, with philosophy hadoras shekomachrem. Nevertheless, we all know that subsequent generations of philosophers disproved what they said. So what was hot in the Middle Ages was disproved in the early modern period. What was hot in the early modern period was disproved in the later period. And what was proved then was disproved in the later period. Right? The Adrabo, Bismanenu Zeh, now he's writing in the 1700s, Bismanenu Zeh, Kom Chacham Muflo Mufursum Godel, a great philosopher, <coughs> has arisen in Germany, Kant. The Ukar call you so to sand, shall philosopher. And he's destroyed all the Friedrich. 
after you've read Kant's work, all the earlier philosophies are bunk uh, in terms of truth. Paretz gidrehem, notatz v'shabar amudehem, v'adneim haretz v'lochomo. He destroyed all their hanochas and their bases. You know, even before Kant, what do you have? Uh, who's the guy with the gonads and all that? Uh, I don't know. Whatever his name was. Uh, Leibniz and the guys before him and Descartes and so forth. Now, and he wrote a Gvaldigan book, to crush all the earlier philosophers, and the book is now out, his arguments are unanswerable, he says, and I will explain this later in the book, and he does, but he has another business, where he uh, goes into great detail over here, Kibishnas, hey Allah from Takma, Mismane Israel, in seventeen eighty one, Kombinkhachmifilosophiumus, and he's going to upshlug all the earlier philosophers. It's a long passage. So here you have a Sefer that was popular in the time of the Grah, which is praising Kant to the skies for his work of destruction and killing Aristotle and all the others in the Middle Ages, who so many Roshonim spent time in. Right? And the Rambam is spending time in the Murna Mukham, for example, to try to explain the Torah in such a way that makes sense in Aristotelian terms. Right? It's defendable, at least, in Aristotelian terms. It was a waste of time. Because Kant will show you the whole Aristotle's baloney, so you don't have to do that. Matter of fact, if you tie a Torah thought to an Aristotelian concept, it's going to be wrong because the Aristotelianism is wrong. Thank you, Kant. In my opinion, well, Kant Wasserman knew this because this safer was popular and was reprinted from time to time. It's funny to me. This book I picked up in, uh, you know, Geula or somewhere in 1906. I'm sorry, 2006. Tavshin I have it written down, the date. And I was in Israel then, I guess. And uh, it was reprinting Yerushalayim in this new format, not Manukad, but, you know, Osius Marubolus and so on and so forth, uh, in Tavshin 1990. So it's weird to me that, I, I don't know who these guys in Meisharim or whatever are publishing a out-of-date science book uh, from Taknaz, you know, from the time of the, uh, uh, the Vilna Gong, but it means it got into the from pantheon, shall we say. And here's Rokhana Wasserman 100 years later, literally 100 years later, he's in Tells, and he's saying, what's up is this Kant guy? I want to understand him. Now, Kant wasn't in, translating Hebrew. Today it is. Uh, I think, what's it? I think uh, Cecil Ross' brother maybe did it. But uh, that time it was only in German. And here's Rokhana in Tells. Obviously, Already at that time, he's interested, as you say before, in philosophical hashkafa issues, as we would say today, on a high level. And on the other hand, you have the Rambam and all these other Roshonim who are so preoccupied with the with the medieval Greek philosophy of the Middle Ages. And here you have in this Sefer where he said this guy wrote a Sefer, Hafla Bapella, to slug up Kant, as they say. I'm sorry, slug up Aristotle and all the Neoplatonists and all this other stuff that 
uh, Rosner plus the other philosophers. And, you know, I'm going to read that safer. And he says he kept that safer for tw- all of his life in, in uh, the art school says, not me, that he kept it in his uh, bookshelf, you know, um, his bathroom reading when he was in Bronner's for 20 years. So to, be, to familiarize himself with Kantian philosophy, which is quite difficult. Now I say again, I'm not a Kantian, and I've always found his stuff hard to understand. Although I'm sure they'll be among the leaders, my uh, listeners, who are into this sort of thing. Uh, and I do know that Kant, uh, with his categorical imperatives and everything, uh, was the inspiration in the 19th century for a lot of the reform rabbis, but also for the Hirschian types and the Breuers and the others, and the Neo-Kantians, because you can then just say, you know, human knowledge is, uh, you know, you understand, how does he go, you know, the the, the noumena, but not the phenomena. You understand it in a chitzonistic way, but you don't understand truth and reality in a panemistic way. And you can always say like this, science and all this other stuff that goes against the Torah is speaking in a chitzonist fashion, and the Torah stuff is speaking in a panemist fashion. I think that's what the Yekis did, those who are like the uh, Hershian and those type of, of philosophers. They're machalic between the Chesonis reality and the Panemis reality. Maybe I'm not doing justice to the subject, but that to me would be something that is fascinating because that's what Wachano is is already at a very young age. Uh, and afterwards, a fascinated with these ideas, even though 99.9% of the rest of his time, he's into learning and he's more into the moon and all the rest of it. Now, precisely because he's aware in a Kantian fashion that, I this is my opinion, Kantian fashion, that all the classic arguments for, I can prove the existence of God, you know, like the people, like the Rambam type, the Sajigon type, or like they do today in these discovery seminars, all other business, is all baloney. So then, what are you based on? Like people sometimes say, how do you know Judaism is true or something like that? And the answer is it falls down to Amuna. That That's the end of the story. You can't prove it. It falls down to Amuna. Now, um, that's tricky, because how do you know what you're believing is the right thing? And so you, these are the issues that seem to preoccupy him in his writing, but he's well aware, as I say before, that's the basis of everything. And uh, in the period, especially in 1920s and, th- and 30s, which I think is the peak years of Rebbe Khan Wasserman, when he was a public figure, I mean, after 1920, when he's in Veronovich, then he's world-known. I don't think before that he was world. He was known in the yeshivas, but I think he was world known. By in the twenties, he was world known, and many many of you may know that he became a classic example of one of these literature Russian yeshivas who became rock stars because they went around so many countries collecting for the yeshiva. Lomachanan went to Germany and England. He was in America, as many people may know. In Baltimore, we have a lot of stories about him. Uh, some I can tell you, some I can't. And um, he was in other countries. He attended all the Aguda conventions. So he became Mamasha a public figure. He's even, for a split second, on that new movie that came out that shows you the Chavetz Chaim, you know, the, that uh, vi- uh, video that's around where they showed the Kinesia Hagadol uh, in, in, in um, Vienna in 1923, which is now famous because of the Chavetz Chaim picture. So uh, Rokhon is there for a, half a second. Um and that means he's a, he was a player. 
You see? Now, as a Russian Shiva Maranovich, he's a player like that. As a world-class Gaon, yeah, you know, major league Rashiba, he's a player in that. But it's more than that. Uh, as I said before, the interesting thing, unique thing about Khan was that I think by the time we're talking about, you know, he hardened fast and his Ashkafas, which is so uh, based on a moon in the Torah that the Torah, therefore, I mean, real Muna. So everything in the Torah is the guide for how you should, how the world runs and how you should run the world and how you should run the world, how you should run the Jewish people. And any departure from that is unbelievably bad. And uh, therefore, the whole Klai Yisrael should be agree to be led by the Gedolim. And um, who are, uh, what's the right word, uh, less contaminated by Gaish ideas, even though he read Khan, but you know, by Gaish ideas, and therefore they can give you the pure Hashkafa. And when I say pure Hashkafa, I do not only mean, this is the part that's unique about it, interesting to me, I do not mean Hashkafa is simply on theological issues. You know, how do you relate to Hashem, how do you daven, what's right, what's wrong, Scharva uh, Onesh, Olam Haba, all that kind of stuff. That's theology. I mean, how do you relate to pure Emun and pure Ashkafa in the conduct of your daily life personally and in the conduct of the Jewish people as such? Uh, how should they relate as a nation, as a people, um, to these Hashkafa and Emunah concepts? Now, what's interesting, of course, is during the period of his activity, which is the 1920s and 30s, these are the maximum years of the defection of large numbers of Jewish people from Yiddishkeit. <laughs> to use modern language, this is when a heck of a lot of people went off the derech. A heck of a lot of people. The process began earlier in the 19th century and was more advanced in the West, but by the early 20th century, it started to catch up in the East. Um, and I'm talking about in terms of numbers. And the process of the disintegration of the old Frumkite received a tremendous impetus by the events of the First World War, which I did a series on a couple years ago, and in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, and Torah Judaism, if I can use that term, uh, suffered a, a real heavy set of blows, which in simple English means more and more people went off to Derek and stopped keeping mitzvahs. So Nechil Shabbos went through the roof. Nechil Kashras went through the roof. Taras Mishpacha, forget about it and so on and so forth. You know what I'm saying? On very large numbers of people, in Poland, in Lithuania, in Austria, and these other countries. Now, there were also a lot of from Jews. There were. But there was a very large number that was going the other direction. Moreover, 1920s and 30s was the great age of the isms. Um, particularly in Jewish life, I would say uh, socialism and Zionism, let's put it that way. Maybe communism. Not really. Communism wasn't for everybody. But social Zionism. The reason for that is simple. Jewish life was uh, rough. <clears throat> the Jews were stuck in these, mostly in the Eastern European countries. The British had made Palestine already uh, a Jewish national homeland, but they wouldn't let anybody in. <laughs> Hardly. And the guys who ran the affairs in Palestine were the Zionists. And the 20s and the 30s, particularly the 30s, might be regarded as the peak years of anti-from activity on the part of secular Zionists. This you have to know the history of Palestine, the mandate Palestine, 
closely, which most people don't. And, you know, they did this and that. I'll, I'll repeat what I said without going into detail. Those were the peak years, I would say, of the uh, anti from and non from stuff going on in Israel and the replacement of a religious Judaism with a active secular uh, Judaism in the form of Zionism in many forms. No, it was an alternative model. The Achada Um cultural Zionism model, which really had its peak years, I'll say again, in the 20s and 30s, not after Israel becomes a state in 1948, interestingly. Then a different dynamic kicks in. But we're talking about the lifetime of Elchanan Wasserman, and this time was going in another direction. Now, he was very from, and a right-wing from. Again, he was a, a student opponent of the Chavetz Chaim. First of all, he, everybody lived through the communist takeover in Russia. Right off the bat, when I say Russia, Russia included Soviet Russia at that time, in the 20s and 30s, included the Belarus and Ukraine, most of it. The Belarus and the Ukraine, and some other parts, is where the old Yiddishkeit resided. The communists, as you know, physically destroyed it. They killed the rabbis, they crushed everything. And may I say, the Jewish communists led the charge, what they called the Yevreska Sexia, the Jewish section of the Communist Party. Not only them. So, the Lubavitchers are very familiar with this, because this is when Lubavitch Rebbe tried to fight against it, and he almost got killed and arrested and blah, blah, blah. Now, um, the, but let me say, the, the, the Lifish also took it on the chin. Uh, if you ever read any of the good, interesting books about Minsk, for example, and so forth, there were heroic attempts to try to keep Yiddish like going secret haters like in the Inquisition time. But you can't hide from the Soviets. You know, they know everything. Their snitch system was unbelievable. They found that and destroyed everything. So it was really, in other words, so Rebbe is living through a time where we're very close to where he lives. I told you before, he's in the border. The other side of the border, shoals, yeshivas, cheders, kashras, mikvahs, everything destroyed. Imagine, you know, what the world looks like like that. You see, you and I are in America, we didn't go through this, and we born much later. And and second of all, compared to Hitler, all this looks like a joke, unfortunately. You know, compared to Hitler, all right, so they closed down this, but they didn't kill him. Here, you know, Hitler went for mass murder. But from a from point of view, I think you've heard this, many of you. The Chavez Chaim said, if I was younger, I would organize an army and fight the Soviets. And Chavez Chaim was not an exaggerator or a liar. You know, he was that from, and he was that uh, Amuna-oriented. And basically, he was also theological. And therefore, from a very strictly technical point of view, uh, how should I put it? The Soviet Union, communism, was a war declared against Malchus Shemayim. If you want to look at it that way, it's not wrong. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting way of putting it because, of course, to an atheist, it's not a war against Malchus Shemayim. There is no Malchus Shemayim, <laughs> you know. But from the point of view of a from Jew, that's how they would see it. So, starting around 1920, 2021, there's a whole stream. Malchus was not only a guy who's running yeshiva, which was hard enough, and now, and dealing with the chinuch and all the rest of it. Not only the guy who's giving shiurim, which it takes up a lot of time, all the rest of it. But clearly, that exception was bubbling with ideas, which he turned into uh, newspaper articles and journal articles by the dozen. 
and they're in Yiddish. And they're in these from newspapers all through the 1920s and even builds up to a crescendo in the 30s. The one most people have heard about, but it's not the only one at all, is the Ikvis and Meshicha, which he writes in 38, 39, just before the war, but also earlier. And he is full of ideas. Let me put it this way. He is, if you want to use the word, I have Das Torah, right? If you want to say that, then be prepared to spend a lot of time with that. Because then tell me, what is the Das Torah as far as, um, I don't know, Biden, or Trump, uh, Roe v. Wade, the, the economy, uh, the depression, the reception, recession, Israel's uh, new politics, um, the turn in Europe, the, the war between, uh, you know, Putin and the Ukraine, the tension between America and China. What is the Torah Shkof in each one? Now, most people say, I guess, oh, you know. And second of all, even the front people, maybe one or two items, you have something safe if it, if it directly affects you, to touch up the whole world, week by week, year by year, through the lens of a Torah Shkofa, this we leave these days to journalists, self-appointed machers, you know, in the Mishpacha, the, the Yeten, all the things, you know. These guys, you know, you got to turn out an article every week to keep your paper going. So you'll come, I mean, they're nobodies. They're not Ochon Wasserman. He, you know what I'm saying? It's not, not, I'm not interested in your opinion. It's Here he's saying like this. This is the Das Torah, you see what I'm saying? Of a Godel, a Godel Ador. And this is, he argues, see, so he was a genuine intellectual, and he was a genuine ideologue, and he argued that all the things of the current times can be uh, up through the lenses of a Torah Kava, his, and believe you me, he has what to say on the Arab rights in Palestine in 1920 and 21 and 1929 when they shechted everybody in Hebron, which he says is Zionist fault, and what's happening pogroms in Poland, and why communism is around in Russia, and, you know, you name it. You know what I'm saying? Now, his Hashkafa is a very from Hashkafa. So, therefore, everything is because if he uses those words, so that's what it boils down to. The Jewish people going the wrong derech, as they said before. His time when he lived is when non frumkite, chil uh, shabbos, and everything goes along with that, sprouted like never before, precisely where he lived in Eastern Europe. In other words, Russia, forget about it, it's under the Soviets. But even within Poland, there was a tremendous chilun, okay? And not only that, but even the ranks of the Orthodox, he can, would consider to be sabotage and because you have um, that terrible phenomenon, in his opinion, called religious Zionism. Boy, was he a big hater of the Mizrahi. And you find uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't like the Torah der Herz system in Germany. You know, they invite him, uh, uh, what's his name, Michiel Jakob Weinberg, had him come and speak in the Hildesheimer Seminary, and he gave him hell for, you know, learning Chachmas Yisrael, and um, he came to America, you know, he's all like this. There are many stories, you can read this in the uh, bios. And, my goodness, you know, everything's wrong in the world. And he's going to tell you why. And believe you me, he knew Kol Terukula, and he's a very good writer in Yiddish, and he can quote the Pesukim and the Chazals and this and that and the other. 
And you know, it's it, in other words, from a literary perspective, it's interesting to read these things, but they're long, they're very complex, they go on and on. Uh, and he's got something to say in every subject. I mean it. If there was an election somewhere, he will, he will put it out there. And broadly speaking, he's like a Jeremiah. He's touching up the sins of the door of his generation. And like Yermio, he said, you know, this is going to bring a Corbin or something like that. Right? Not exactly, but those words. The abandonment of the Torah is going to bring a Corbin. And he becomes the most eloquent and the most Jeremiahic. Uh, in the 1930s, especially with the rise of Hitler. See, you wanted to be like the Goyim? Now Hitler has risen to power and the Goyim will kick you out. See, you wanted to learn their language? Now they're going to throw you out of college. See, you're abandoning, uh, what do you call it? Um, Kashrus? So uh, Hitler's uh, declaring war on Kashrus, you know, because he said you can't, you have to stun the animals. See, you want to do this? They'll do it. That whole way of looking at things, that the whole Holocaust, now he lived, you know, up to the beginning of the Holocaust, and he killed in 41. See, he's going through 1930, 1930s, and um, he has a famous line there, which is a very good line. It's from the Sefer Hasidim. Now, again, I can't go through all this. I told you, it's too large of a subject. I'm just touching on a few Rashi Prakim over here, right? Really, I, I mean this to be a brief business. Um, he has the Sefer Hasidim, you know, from the Rishon, the Sefer Hasidim, from the 1100s, says a famous line, which is, uh, if you ever see the Goyim destroy something which is Kaddish to the Jews, the Jews were Mechalet itself. This is the basic idea that, uh, I'll give you a famous example. You see that shul that was destroyed? It because it was talking in the shul. Uh, a lot of Rishonim write like that. What does that mean? You yourselves didn't have respect for the Kedusha. Because listen, from the strictly halachic perspective, not to give a Muslim, from the halachic perspective, if it's a base Knesset, you, you can't have any deeper hole in there. Okay? Now, nobody goes like that today, right or wrong, but, you know, from a from a, a halachic perspective, there can be no deeper hole inside a base Knesset. Once upon a time, from me long ago, you know, in earlier centuries, I mean, the from from, if they had somebody saw somebody in show, they wanted to tell them something, they would like gesture them, and they would go outside the building, and then they would ask them what time is it or something like that, you know, or uh, you know, ask them whatever the question was, or, or get involved in the conversation, but not inside the base of Knesset itself. Uh, so what's the point? And if the Jews, nevertheless, were in talking, which has always been there, well, then don't be surprised if if the guy am you know, make a pogrom and destroy the shul and, uh, you know, uh, uh, desecrate everything, because you already desecrated yourself. So that's like a big episode with him, you know. If the Hitler is doing this, if the communists are doing it, you know, let's put it this way. The communists are stamping out all the yeshivas. What does that mean? You Jewish people have spurned Talmud Torah. You see, you know, that's his way of looking at it. Or if the Arabs are rioting in Palestine, you Zionists have, uh, you know, cause this through whatever particular sin you did, which are endless. So, I'll say it again. He has, I don't know how many articles. He's got a lot. Uh, they have the Kovitz Mamaris, whatever it is. They have a number of them. Uh, and you have to translate them out of the Yiddish into Hebrew. Um, and all through, you see, he has an opinion 
which would be what we call a Torah Hashkaf opinion, because that's what he's always basing it. He's always quoting it from a Chazal, from a Medrash, from a this, from a that, and he is tishing up current events. Now, he lived in dramatic times. As you see, as the 1930s went by, Hitler got bigger and bigger, the danger got bigger and bigger, right? Um, he, he really was very interested and preoccupied with what's going on in Palestine. Um, he thought the whole Zionism is a, is a war against God. And he even says words like, you know, you want to declare war on Hashem? Let's go. <laughs> Put up your dukes. That's that's the language he uses. You know? Haskilo, he says. Let's, uh, okay, start the war. And as things went down, down, down in the late 30s, because Hitler got bigger and bigger, the anti-Semitism got more and more toxic. Situation got worse and worse. Hitler was more and more Matzliach. First he took over Germany, as you know, then he got Austria, then he got Czechoslovakia, then he got the, the you know, what he called the memo, and one after another. And wherever he went, his ideas were triumphant. So that, of course, led, uh, what he called Rechana, to come up with the idea of Ikvis and Mashiach. He's the one who touches up. Before it happened, around the time of Kristallnacht, that we are now living Ikvis and Mashiach. Which means, you see a tremendous Chorban. Well, that's what happened. It was a Holocaust. And you can see tremendous this, and that, and the other. The only problem is, there was a Holocaust, but there was no Mashiach. Right? Instead, you got the State of Israel. So, you know, a person can, and a from supporter of Bokhan's Shittas will say, well, he's talking about the beginning of it. So, basically, I want you to understand, if you say it's Ikhfiz and Mashiach, then this is, in a, in a Haredi way, it's racist smich as gulaseinu. Right? Because the Ikhfiz and Mashiach, the Hevli Mashiach, the terrible sufferings and destructions, which Am Yisrael certainly did go through, are understood, not Stam as a punishment in the Velterine. If you're touching it up as Ikhfiz and Mashiach, you're saying it's the beginning of a messianic process. At the end of the tunnel is Geula. You see? Now, here we are in the year 2022, which is 80-some years later. It hadn't exactly played out that way. I might also say that that's the trouble. And, you know, Israel didn't turn out the way he saw it because I remember there's an article that's in Tchumen somewhere that when in the uh, Aguda had a famous um, Knesia conference in Marienbad in 1937. Here, I'm going too long. Let me just switch this for a second. Okay, I think I'm picking up here. Uh, in 37, the Agoda had a Knesia, uh in Marienbad, which is one of the spas. And at that time, Czechoslovakia, actually the Sudetenland, and it was Al-Saf HaCherv, I would say, edge of a sword. Czechoslovakia, where my mother lived, was the only country that was pro-Jewish. So we say, you know, the government did not tolerate anti-Semitism. And therefore, um, in Marienbad and Karlsbad, the two big spas, as all the rabbis went, including Rebbe Khanna, by the way. There was a wonderful book that, um, what's her name, got me, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, oh, hey, Marty Vidaver, very nicely, called Marienbad and Beyond, by David Leitner, from England, I guess, or Israel, whatever. And it's all about the Father's Hotel. They ran the, from, the, I would say, the Haredi Hotel in um, Marienbad. 
in the uh, before the Second World War, and they had the uh, Knesia Gadol there, and his father, grandfather, whoever, was the local guy who put the whole thing together from the point of view of the organization. It's a fascinating book, right? It's a fascinating book about the Knesia Gadol and other things in there. Erbachana, by the way, was there. I don't remember. He used to go. He used to hang out there for summer. You know, was a, he he went there also. Uh, I forget what he did. He, there was some mice with him there. But uh, like I said, I don't want to get bogged down in those. The Gare Rebbe went there. You know, all the big people went there. Anyway, the point is like this. Um, as far as Zionism and anti-Zionism is concerned. That year um, was a year that was called the Peel Commission. Skipping all the details, there was a possibility that England might create a Jewish state in Palestine in a chalik of Israel. Uh, if you can Google it, you'll see it would have included the Galil and some land down to Tel Aviv. That would have been the whole Jewish state. Um, and they were seriously talking about it. And now in the end, it fell through. But in 37, 38, it was on the agenda. And I think it was Dr. Isaac Breuer, who's a very hashkafic-minded guy, and took very seriously the Agoda concept of Moses Gedolia Torah, this is the Das Torah. And so he asked them that the Moses Gedolia Torah, the Agoda Sisrael, as an organization, should come out, you know, sort of like the Catholic Church. What is the opinion, the official position of from Judaism? Should there be should we back a Jewish state? And it turned out that the Haredi world was very split on this. It's a fascinating subject. There are articles in this, not books. Um, in in the Hebrew and in German, I think. And almost so it turned into fistfights in this big hotel um, or, or convention center you had in Marienbad 37, and all the biggies were there. And Bokhona um, Wasson was there. And I remember... I'm, I'm, you know who wrote about this? Years ago in the Yiddish paper, he used to write about it a lot. Dr. Hillel Zayman, who's an excellent writer. I used to like his stuff. Um, excellent writer. Anyway, um, uh, the, the, there was a big split and the uh, German uh, Rabbonin and the Hungarians were very ideologically anti-Zionist. So even in 37, it's like Munkash, you know, they're against setting up a Jewish state. By contrast, the Polish and the Lithuanian Jews were in favor of a Jewish state because they said, we're standing at the edge of destruction, which was true. And, you know, any moment the war could break out, we'll all get killed, which was true. And here we have a, an opening, a petach tikva, that, you know, could have a Jewish state. Who cares where it is, you know? Let's say the Galil... Stuff all the Jews into the gully, a big deal. Better than getting killed under Hitler and his heresy throw. So the great majority of the Rabbonin from Poland and Lithuania were pro-estate. And the great majority of the Rabbonin from Hungary, Germany Hungary were anti-estate. Exceptions, I mean, I remember Dr. Isaac Breuer and somebody else was pro-estate, even though he was from Germany. And in... Um, Lithuania and Poland is a Baron Cutler of They were anti, even at that stage. And they gave an interview. Rebuchanan Wasserman said like this If they will set up a state, mark my words, they will not allow one from Jew to immigrate there. No Haredi Jew will be allowed to immigrate there. Uh, that was ridiculous. That's not true. 
Now, you could come back and say, oh, well, Kath, you're talking about in 48 times were different. Maybe in 37, 38, if they would have had a state, they wouldn't allow it. Nah, it's not true. Uh, but it goes to show you how stark he was in his hashkafa, um, was anti-Zionist. Is you know, he was convinced thoroughly, and even when he was in 1940-41, when the Imam was standing at the edge of destruction, and he already started to write, he had he had a son in Palestine or something like that, a brother, and he said, "Listen, uh, I don't want to abandon my yeshiva because I think you know he could have uh, saved himself, but he wouldn't do that." But now, five minutes before destruction. He wrote and he said like this, get me, you know, Bidyevid, get me some passports if you can for me and my family to escape to Eretz Yisrael only as a very last resort. I mean, he didn't do like some of the Hungarian thing that they got on the train and before. He was there to the end. But he said, get me a passport, but make sure I don't get it through the Sochna, but through the Agoda. I don't want to be, behold, I don't want to get any Hanau from the Zionists. You see? Now in the end, it was too late and he got killed anyway. I'm just trying to show you the extent of his Hashkovic certainty and his enmity to anything that smacked of the Jewish state and all the rest of it. See, he thought it would be, you know, Ikvis uh, and Meshichah, and that Zionism is like the Avodah I'm I'm using these terms literally, right? And basically, he writes like Daniel. Get it? We have a, a apocalyptic a description of what times will be like in Daniel. And by the way, it does fit the 1930s and 40s, if you want. Just at the end, it doesn't. In other words, living at that time, you could tie it did. The reason I say it doesn't is it's not followed by some go-go-mongo situation in which the Archangel Michael appears and saves the Jew at the last minute. That didn't happen. You know? Lamaisa, at least standing for where we are now, it doesn't look like Hitler was the Ikvist and the Mashiach. I know people at that time thought that, and Bukhan Rasman, one of the main people who put out the idea that Hitler's identical with, you know, an Amolik type case, and like I say, um, the 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 Chevli Mashiach and all the rest of it, but I don't see it. Um, you know, now you could say the, the process has not yet unfolded, cats, and give it another 20, 30 years, and you'll see it was right. Could be. You know, could be. But standing where we are right now, I don't see it. Now, um, so it goes to show you again, that the heathen touched up the Kristallnacht and the aftermath and the rise of the war. Even when he was in America, he wrote these Hashkafic articles. He gave his famous speech in, in, in McKeesport and a, a letter to the, uh, to the, to the Poli Agud, uh, not the Poli Agud, to the Mike Tress, you know, uh, the Pirche, Tzire, that's it. And, um, oh, Poli Agud, he didn't have any time for it because they like compromised with the Zionists in 1930. He said they're like doing a terrible sin. And he said, you really think the 600 members of Polio are going to join 45,000 of the Hist that is going to make a difference to the British? Is going to help the, the cause? He was pretty stark on all that. I believe that's in the article biography. You can find a lot of that. So we have there Robochonet as a major um, expositor and theoretician. And uh, again, and he wasn't the newspaper of, you're not talking about some journalist in Hamadia or uh, some guy writing a you know, column, what the heck in, uh, you know, Ami, you're talking about a Godelador. But he had a very strong, uh, sharply etched uh, um, concept of Ashkafas, and he really pushed them. More than anybody else that I can think of. Chaim Reiser didn't write this kind of way. 
Pundit didn't write this kind of way. Ron Culler, as far as I know, didn't write this kind of way. These kind of things. You know, Telzerub didn't write this kind of way. But Rebel Khan certainly did. Rebel Khan certainly did. And his old speech at that Tennessee also, in which he lays this old thing out. So basically, Almol of Darts, Allah's Torasi. He said very much in a black and white uh, type situation. Uh, I see I've gone way beyond what I wanted to, but I don't want to end on such a you know, gloomy note. So I'll tell you two stories. Maybe I've said before, I'm not. Uh, Baltimore, that I can share with you. Uh, the human side. And then I'll shut this down. I'm going way beyond what I planned to. Um, I used to know a representative of Benowitz, an old lady when I was young. And her husband died in the 50s. I mean, Mordecai Rabinowitz, Rabinowitz. And he was a rough in Baltimore. He's originally from Yishlein. He ended up moving to this country around 1920. He went to YU, believe it or not, before it was YU, you know, when it was just his little hunting. And he got smicha there. I know because the Rebbe used to have his smicha in the living room, you know, signed by Dr. Rebel and uh, Dovar Levensall and all those big people from yesterday, the, the Ramaz Margulis and so forth. He was a very from guy. And if you want to know how from he was, his best friend, his buddy was Rav Henkin. Give you an idea. So, Rav Hanin came to America in, what, 37, I guess? And, you know, as far as he's concerned, America's all trafe. And so, yeah, the only guy you can trust is Rav Henkin. You know, because Rav Henkin was a renowned tzaddik. And he basically said, "Where if I'm going around in America, where can you eat? And Hankin said, if you went to Baltimore, the only place I can recommend is uh, Robert Rabinowitz, my buddy. And so that's where he stayed. Uh, for one Shabbos, he stayed at Rabbi Schwab's, if I remember correctly, to speak at the Sheriff uh, Scissors, the Glen Avenue Shul. And the other times he was downtown at Robert Rabinowitz's. That was his base. Then to Rebison told me, she was much younger, of course, told me at 37, 1937. So they didn't have any children, and he was a big tzaddik, and he, used to, he actually made people from at that time. And um, they said, listen, Rebbe Khan is getting, coming on the train, I don't know, 7, 8 in the morning. If you know Baltimore, where they live, Presbury Street, the train station was a few blocks away from their house. And so uh, her husband said like this, I'm going to bring Rebbe in, and we'll make breakfast. So she cooked up a breakfast like you'd imagine, Litvishet Paradise, you know, with the sour cream and all that stuff. And she waited, and then they all come in together. Uh, Rav Hankin was there because he was accompanying them on the train, Rav Hanawasan, and her husband. And she said, I made you a whole breakfast. And Rav Hanawasan said, I guess, oh, you don't have to do that. I ate on the train. And anyway, we didn't come here, you know, for to, to feast. We came here to hit the road and, and raise money for my yeshiva. That's what he was there for. And so within a short while, the three of them, Rav Hanawasan and Rav Hanawasan, Rav Hankin, hit the road, and they spend all day long going around to all the businesses in Baltimore raising money. Came back um, later at night, I think like 10 at night, something like that, and came back, and she said, she said like this, Rebbe Lachana came and said, Rebbe I said, a coup. <laughs> I'm so hungry, I could, I could eat a cow. He said, I hope you made a big supper. I didn't eat since yesterday. She said, you didn't eat since yesterday? Why'd you tell me this morning that you already ate, you weren't hungry. He said, I didn't know who your husband was. Now I know. 
So that's the type of person he was. And by the way, it tells you who Rabbi Rabinowitz was. Now, she later on had a son-in-law, a, a, a daughter they adopted, Rabbi Leibowitz, who back in his day, way back when, was one of the best guys in their Israel, you know, in those years. And he told me once that, um, again, we're talking 1930, that, you know, uh, Rabbi Ruderman, he was a small yeshiva at that time. And Friday night, he said, I guess everybody go from the yeshiva to the house where Rolchan is staying, uh, you know, cover the Torah and talk to him and learning this, and that, and the other. And so all these guys walked there. It wasn't that far, actually. It's my old neighborhood. I know it. From Forest Park to, to North Avenue. So, um, old past North Avenue. So they all walked there. And it was a freezing cold winter night full of snow. And all the boys came in, as you can imagine, the scene. And this was a there at the table with Rabbi Rabinowitz and Rabbits and all the rest of it. And they all came in and let in the cold air, you know, when they opened the door. Rabbi Khanan said something like, Rebison, uh, you know, now it's cold or something. Give me uh, a glass of tea. Give me some tea. And she gave him uh, a cup of tea. And he downed it at one shot, like <laughs> like an Irishman drinking whiskey. And like, they were shocked. And he turned red like a fire engine. I'm telling you where Rebino has told me. Rebbe Khanan, he turned red and like a volcano. And he got up and he walked outside just in his shirt, you know. Um, on the freezing cold porch because he was so hot. And Rabbi Leibowitz, who was a yeshiva bugger, said like this, the Rabbi can have a cult. You know, don't stand out in the porch like that. We'll get you a coat. You could catch a cold. And So, means he had a sense of humor. Okay? Um, now again, there's a whole lot more to this parsha than what I shared, but I told you um, this Nakuda or this aspect is something that I don't think people usually think of. And anyway, that's what I undertook to do. And uh, with that, I want to thank the Genders and pay tribute to Nisham Shavon Aliyah for his father. And I uh, close this shop down. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.